The scripture reading for today comes from Psalm 88. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. The word of the Lord is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. You can be seated. And uh, good morning again and welcome to New Life Fremont. My name is Kevin. If I haven't had a chance to meet any of you yet, we are continuing our sermon series on lament. This is the second of four weeks. Last week we talked about the cause of lament. We looked at Genesis 3 and how all of our laments, everything sad or wrong in our lives, flows from the fall, the fall of mankind, the fall of creation. And therefore, it could be said that everything sad or wrong in our lives flows from sin. Human rebellion against God is what fractured everything. Next week, we're going to talk about the prayer of lament, and the week after, we'll conclude with the hope of lament. But today what we're going to be talking about is the pain of lament. You know, if we were to chart out these four sermons in terms of how depressing they are, today's sermon is going to be a low point, uh, a valley. You know, last week's about the cause was a bit depressing, but it it just began the downward trajectory. Today we are going to bottom out. Then we'll spend the next couple weeks, you know, with prayer and hope, starting that upward trajectory out of the valley. But as I've said in, you know, other contexts, you can't know how high God has brought you until you acknowledge how low you have been. You know, the height of the mountaintop depends on how deep the valley was. How bright the light of hope is depends on how dark the pit was. So today, we're going to walk through the deep, dark valley. And to help us, we'll be using Psalm 88. Now, Psalm 88 is a psalm of lament. That's probably obvious. It's one of approximately 40 psalms of lament, but Psalm 88 is a little bit different than the other psalms of lament. Do you have any idea what makes it different? 
all the other psalms of lament have a point where the mood changes from depression and despair to hope. Uh, the prayer we prayed earlier was actually straight from Psalm 13. That's an example of that. Uh, Psalm 42, another. It ends like this. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And so all other psalms of lament have a shift like that or a moment like that, a, a glimpse of hope in the midst of lament, but not Psalm 88. Psalm 88 expresses no hope, only pain, only lament. There's no hope at all in this psalm. And so many people have struggled with this psalm. How can there be a psalm with no hope? Why was this psalm even allowed in the Bible? How can God's people be expected to sing a psalm like this? We're going to look a little bit deeper at these questions and Psalm 88, and as we do so, we'll have three points. The depth of pain, the loneliness of pain, and what we do with our pain. And so let's begin with the first point, the depth of pain. So Psalm 88 begins uh, in verses 1 and 2 by saying, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. I cry out day and night. Incline your ear to my cry. This is the prayer of someone in tremendous emotional pain. You know, we actually have no idea what the specific circumstances are. We only know how the psalmist feels, and he is crying out day and night. You know, that means he's not sleeping. The situation is desperate. It's urgent. It's painful. And he is begging God to listen. Incline your ear to my cry. It feels like you're not hearing me, God, and I really need to be heard right now. Have you ever felt like that? Like you were in a desperate situation, but when you cried out for help, nobody else seemed to take it as seriously. It was like they didn't even hear you. That's difficult enough when it's other people, but how much more difficult when it's God who seems like he's not hearing you. The psalm continues to describe the depth and descent of the psalmist's pain. Verse 3, my life is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I'm so troubled that I feel like I'm going to die. Verses 4 and 5, I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. So now it's not, just like he, it's not just feeling like he's going to die. He feels like he has died, like he's cut off from God. He has no strength anymore. He's like a corpse in the grave who God doesn't even remember. And if things weren't dark and depressing enough, he goes one step further in verses 6 and 7. You put me in the depth of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with your waves. So he goes from feeling like he's going to die to feeling like he is dead to, worst of all, feeling like God is the one who put him in that spot. You're the reason I feel this way, God. And the psalmist is essentially pointing his finger at God. That's kind of uncomfortable, right? How can a psalm in the Bible say something like that? It's because God and his word are not threatened or offended by life's hardest questions. 
the reason the psalmist says, you, God, put me in the depths of the pit is because God did put him in the depths of the pit. God is sovereign, and the psalmist knows it. God put the psalmist there. And so the psalmist goes straight to the source. He goes to God with his questions and says, you put me in this pit, God. And to say that is, is more than uncomfortable. It's, it's confusing. It hurts. It's depressing. God, you knew about this? God, you let this happen to me? God, did you make this happen to me? You know, two summers after I graduated from college, I was still living in my college town. I had just finished my first year working as an intern with a campus ministry, and I was fundraising to do a second year with that same campus ministry, uh, which I was going to spend internationally doing um, a planting project in uh, the country of Montenegro. And I can remember I was most of the way through the summer. Fundraising had been going well. I had a great group of friends in town with me. Uh, And pretty soon I would be getting on a plane to go over to Europe, fully funded, ready to devote a year to gospel ministry there. So one day I'm working at the uh, Campus Crusade office. It was mid-morning or so, and I get a phone call from my mom. So I walk outside to answer it, and she tells me that she got a call from the doctor's office, and a biopsy she had came back that she had stage 3 breast cancer. And the reason she's the one calling me and not somebody else is because my dad's on a flight, his cell phone is off. None of us thought that we were going to be getting bad news that morning because each of the previous times she'd had a biopsy, the results were clean. And so I'm the first person she's told it's just the two of us who know this terrible news and our worlds have been rocked. It felt like death. And what followed was months of chemotherapy during which she lost all her hair And then not one, but two surgeries because the first one didn't get clear margins on the tumor. And then radiations for a time later on. And you're going through all these things because that's what cancer patients are supposed to do. But we don't have any idea if they're going to work. I remember being so confused. Why? Why my mom? Why my family? Why, right when I'm preparing to do your work, God, I'm going overseas to do missions work. Why would you do this to me and my family? Why have you put us in this pit, God? Have you ever been there? Not necessarily the particular circumstances, but have you ever been there emotionally? So overwhelmed, so troubled by what's going on in your life that you feel like you're going to die. You feel like you are dead. You feel like God doesn't see you anymore. You feel like God, for some unfathomable reason, has put you in a pit. Have you ever been there before? When? When in your life have you been there? When have you cried out day and night to God? When has your soul been full of troubles? When have you been acutely aware that God put you in the pit that you're in? When has the darkness of the valley, the depth of your pain, driven you to cry out, why, God? Why? Why have you put me here? If you, if you take your pain seriously, and if you take God seriously, that's where you end up. 
in the pit where from the depth of your pain you're asking God, why? How long, God? Why am I in this situation? Why have you put me here? And that can feel a little bit uncomfortable, right? I'm sure some of you might feel uncomfortable uttering those words to God. How could we, as mere humans, as sinners, dare to question God? It may even feel like too much to even dare to say it was God who put us in the pit. And so we'll, we'll sugarcoat it. God didn't put me here. He just allowed me to be put here by something else. But if God is all-powerful and certainly could have stopped that from happening, why didn't he? You know, that's maybe the hardest part of our pain. That's where the depth of pain takes you to realizing that God somehow, some way, for some reason, had a hand in putting you there. Of all the causes of your trouble and despair, ultimately you can trace it back to God somehow. So that's why the psalmist says, you have put me in the depths of the pit, God. That's a, a lonely realization, right? Because if you put me here, God, who else do I have? Am I totally alone in this? That takes us to our second point, the loneliness of pain. You know, one of the kind of strange comforts during this whole COVID-19 pandemic has been that, you know, no matter how bad it seems to get, for the most part, we haven't been alone during it. You know what I mean? Like, everyone is going through the same pandemic. We all have to keep wearing masks. We all have to socially distance. We've all had to reorient our lives in some way, stay home more, miss Sunday worship for a year, uh, in person at least. You know, we couldn't see the people we love for a time. Uh, But, you know, most of those ways that the pandemic affected our lives, it affected everyone else's lives also in the, the same sorts of ways. And so we haven't felt totally alone. And I don't mean to gloss over the truly, you know, specific and particular ways some of you have been affected by the pandemic. That's real. That's legitimate. But by and large, there's been a sort of strange comfort that at least we're in it together. At least I'm not the only one in this pandemic. And I point that out because most of the time, pain is not like that. Most of the time, pain is lonely. Most of the time when you're in pain, it feels like you're totally alone. And sometimes it's more than a feeling. Sometimes you are actually totally alone. There is a loneliness in our pain. And that's exactly where the psalmist goes next in Psalm 88. Verse 8, you have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. It's just brutal. My companions have shunned me. I'm a horror to them. One of our worst fears, right? that we will be in such desperate pain, and when we need our friends the most, they'll shun us. They'll see us in pain and say, that's too much for me. You're too much for me. I can't handle you right now. And we we worry that will happen to us, and that's what the psalmist says is actually happening to him. And it keeps getting worse. You know, verse 18 at the end of the psalm, you have caused my beloved and my friends to shun me. My companions have become darkness. And so now it's not just his companions, it's also his beloved. This guy's wife, the person he probably thought would never turn his back on him, has turned on him. And from a human perspective, he is absolutely and totally alone in his pain. Our translation says, my companions have become darkness, i.e. they're all gone. 
some translations say the darkness is my only companion. You know, the only companion I have is no one. Darkness, nothing. Either way, you get the picture. He is all alone. It's not just in human relationships that he's alone. He also feels lonely before God. Verses 13 and 14. But I, O Lord, cry to you in the morning. My prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? I'm calling out to you, God. Where are you? My friends are gone. My beloved is gone. Are you gone too? Have you ever been there? In pain, suffering something, and feeling totally alone. That's one of the worst parts about the painful things we go through. I mean, the pain itself is bad enough, but then there's the loneliness. I'm in pain, but on top of it, no one understands the pain I'm in. And we usually experience this through poor sympathizers. You know, in general, people aren't very good at empathizing or sympathizing. And this isn't new. If you read the book of Job in the Bible, much of it is made up of speeches from Job's friends who are terrible sympathizers. And unfortunately, a lot of the people in our own lives will be poor sympathizers. I mean, I remember sharing with my group of friends about my mom's cancer diagnosis. They had no idea what to say. Their words didn't comfort me. They wanted to comfort me, but they didn't know how. I felt totally alone. But even when people do know that they should empathize, even when they do have some sense of what would be appropriate to say, to communicate, that they care, even if people have been in the exact same situation before, they still don't know exactly what it's like for you, right? I'm not the same person as you. My story is different than yours. My disposition is different than yours. My triggers are different than yours. My pain was different than yours. It's just so lonely to be in pain. When you're in pain, you feel alone. When someone you love is in pain, part of their pain is that they feel alone. I think one of the most uh, profound portrayals of pain is in the movie Manchester by the Sea. Uh, In the movie, there's a man named Lee, and he finds out that his brother has died, and that's not even the worst part of this. His brother has died, And in his brother's will, he named Lee to be the legal guardian of his son, Patrick, Lee's nephew. And uh, Patrick is a high schooler. And so Lee, who lives in Boston, moves up to Manchester temporarily to figure out what's next for him and Patrick. And Lee's initial plan is to bring Patrick back to Boston to live with him. But Patrick rejects that idea. He's in high school. His entire life and support system is in Manchester. Why doesn't Lee just move up to Manchester? After all, there's no real reason for Lee to stay in Boston. He doesn't have any ties there. Well, Lee can't move to Manchester. And the reason that he can't move to Manchester is because he actually used to live there before. And it's revealed through a flashback that when he did live in Manchester, he was married, and he had three small children. But one night... Lee had a bunch of friends over. They were partying, abusing various substances, and eventually Lee's wife makes everyone leave, and they do, but Lee goes uh, upstairs and checks on the kids, and it's freezing in the house, and so he starts a fire in the fireplace to warm up the house. Uh, They try not to use the central heat, I guess, because his wife's sinuses get bad, and so he starts this fire, sits down to watch some TV, but he's out of beer. He's drunk, but he needs more beer. And so he gets up, 
go to the store and get more beer. Throws a couple more logs on the fire to keep the house warm while he's gone. He has to walk because he is in no condition to drive. About halfway there, he wonders, did I put the screen on the fireplace? Figures he probably did, and if, even if not, he'll be back soon anyway. It'll be fine. But it wasn't. He had forgotten to put the screen on the fireplace, and a log rolled out and set the house on fire. And when Lee finally gets back there, there are fire trucks and a crowd gathered around what used to be his home. The firefighters managed to get inside, and they found Lee's wife unconscious, and so they rescued her and brought her out. But before they could go back in, the furnace exploded, and they weren't able to get the kids out, and they all died. And Lee has been living with that pain and guilt ever since. That's why he can't move back to Manchester. It's too painful for him. It hurts too much. But no one else seems to understand that. Whenever people learn about the situation with Lee's nephew, they all suggest that he just move to Manchester. Just move back to Manchester, Lee. That will solve all your problems. Even as a viewer watching the film, you think this is going to be a story where Lee overcomes his pain and moves back to Manchester. The relationship with his nephew will be what finally heals him, right? Even that is just us imposing our desire for resolution and satisfaction upon a hurting Lee. The audience just adds to the number of people who don't truly understand Lee and his pain. He is alone in his pain. That's how the writer and director of the film decides to end it. Lee never moves back to Manchester. He stays in Boston. No one understands why, but Lee has to stay in Boston. Pain is so lonely. No one seems to understand. So what are we supposed to do? What can we do when we are in pain? Pain is excruciating. Pain is lonely. So what do we do with it? That takes us to our final point, what we do with our pain. Okay, pretty depressing sermon up to this point. I'll try to loosen up a little bit for this final point. I've intentionally been avoiding any hope during this sermon. Even as I was writing it, there were times I would follow up something I said with, but that's not true, or that's not reality, that's just how you feel. There, there actually is hope in God and Christ, but when I did that, I would highlight the line, cut it, paste it at the end of the document, maybe to save it for later. Because when you're in pain, you often feel like there's no hope. And it's actually okay with God for you to feel like that sometimes as part of your processing your pain. So I wanted to make sure we truly felt Psalm 88, the thrust of it. You know, Psalm 88 never turns that corner toward hope. Other Psalms do, but not this one. The, verse, the last verse of the psalm ends like this. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. The end. I've been crying day and night. My soul is full of troubles. I feel like I'm going to die. I feel like I'm dead. My friends have left me. My beloved has left me. My God has left me. I'm all alone. This is the end. No hope. Now, why would a psalm like this be in the Bible? Why did God include this in his songbook for his people? Well, a couple reasons. You know, the first is that it shows us that sometimes in this life, periods of darkness can last for a long time. So long that it feels like there's no hope, like there will never be resolution. But second, 
it shows us what to do in such periods. What do we do in prolonged periods of darkness? What do we do with our pain? Tell God. When your soul is full of trouble, when you feel like you're dying, when you feel hopeless, tell God. Psalm 88 exists for those moments. It's a divinely inspired prayer for you to pray when you feel no hope. When you're so overwhelmed that you can't even bring yourself to string together a few words, God has given you a full prayer that you can pray. And he wrote it in such a way that you don't even have to express hope in him. It's okay with God if you just tell him about your pain. It's okay with God if in your pain you blame him, you accuse him, you mischaracterize him. He can handle that. It's like this. Have you ever been in a fight or an argument with someone and it's getting heated, you're, you're being a little bit reckless with your words, your blood is boiling, and you reach a point where you find yourself saying, I need to leave or we need to stop and continue this later because I'm scared I'm going to say something that I can never take back, something that's going to do irreparable damage to the relationship, and I don't want to do that. Have you ever reached a moment like that in a fight? In our human-to-human relationships, that might be a wise and necessary thing to do sometimes, but the beautiful thing about God is that you don't have to do that with him. You don't have to hold back with God. You don't have to pause and revisit the conversation later. You can let him have it now. He can handle how upset you are. Nothing you say is going to do irreparable damage to the relationship. There's no damage that God cannot heal. There's nothing he can't absorb, and so let it all out. Tell God your pain. Take your pain to God even when you feel no hope. Ironically, there's actually something victorious about prayers like Psalm 88. Prayers of pain, prayers of lament, prayers where there's no hope. Do you see how there's a victory to this prayer? Do you see how Psalm 88 is a victorious prayer? Let me explain. In the book of Job, God is talking with Satan, and God says, look at my servant Job. There is no one else like him on the earth. He is a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And Satan is like, give me a break. You think Job fears you for no reason? You've blessed Job tremendously with productive work, with possessions, with family. He only serves you because of what, you, what he's getting out of it. But if you take everything away from him, he will curse you to your face and walk away. So God says, okay, Satan, let's just see about that. You can take anything and everything from Job. You can't kill him, but you can take everything else from his life. It's fair game. We'll see if Job curses me and walks away. So Job truly loses everything. He reaches the brink of despair. He says some things about God that later on God says, you probably shouldn't have said that. But ultimately, Job never turns his back on God. Satan is wrong. God is right, and Job is vindicated. He continued to pray and serve God even when he was getting absolutely nothing out of it. He wasn't even getting hope out of it. And so Psalm 88 is a victorious prayer in the same way. It's a prayer from someone who continues to turn to God even when he's getting nothing out of it. It's a prayer that proves Satan wrong and God right. It's a prayer that defeats Satan and shows that God is victorious. And so what do we do with our pain? What do we do with our darkness? What do we do with our despair? We take it to God. It doesn't matter how imperfectly you do it. It doesn't matter how angry you are. It doesn't matter how raw you are. You just take it to God. 
prayers to God from such a deep, dark valley are victorious over Satan. Now, in Job's example, it kind of seemed like there were only two options. Satan's bet that he could curse, he would curse God and walk away, or God's bet that he would continue to take his pain to God despite his despair and hopelessness. But I think there's actually another way Satan would be happy for Job to respond, another way that he'd be happy for us to respond, and that's to just stuff our pain. You know what I mean when I say it's to stuff it, to hide our pain, to pretend we're not in pain when we actually are, to stuff it. Do you know why Satan would be happy for us to stuff our pain? It's because it makes us functional atheists. When we stuff our pain, we hide our pain, when we pretend we're not in pain, what we're doing is through our actions declaring things about God. Do you see that? When you're in pain, but you try to hide it from God, what you're declaring, what you're saying about God is that he is uncaring. When you're in pain, but you hide it from God, you're declaring that he's not powerful enough to do something about your pain. And those are lies from the pit of hell. The writer of Psalm 88, in the midst of his despair, just by virtue of directing a single word in God's direction, worships him. Do you see that? Even from the deep, dark valley of despair, you can still worship just by uttering something in God's direction. By doing so, you declare that God cares, that God is concerned with his people, because if he wasn't, you wouldn't speak to him at all. And even when the psalmist seems to blame God, when he says in verse 6, you have put me in the depths of the pit, he's still praising God. Do you see that? Because if God is powerful enough to put you in that pit, the implication is that God is powerful enough to bring you out of the pit also. God is powerful enough to bring you out of the pit. So what do we do with our pain? We take it to God. No one else will have answers for you. So you might as well ask God your questions. He can handle your questioning. He can handle your finger pointing. He can handle the depth of your pain. You know, we have a, an almost one-year-old daughter, and uh, when she sleeps, we have a video baby monitor. Uh, there's a camera in her room, and it sends a video signal to this little handheld baby monitor with video and audio of what's going on in there. And this baby monitor has made me think a lot about what it must be like for God to keep his eyes on me. Because what will happen is our daughter will start crying out day and night. Her soul is full of troubles. You have put me in the depths of this pit, her bed. But we'll check out the monitor and see that she's going to be okay. Now, she does not always agree with that assessment. She seems to feel hopeless, like darkness is her only friend. But we're her parents. We see her. We know that she'll be okay. You know, she just needs to lay back down, roll over, and whatever, go back to sleep. And usually that's what happens. Of course, sometimes we can tell that she's not going to be okay left on her own, and so we'll get more directly involved. We'll go into the room. We'll maybe change her diaper, feed her a little bit, rock her to get her to go back to sleep. But either way, we're always watching her. We know what she needs even better than she does. We provide what she needs. When she feels abandoned, when she feels despair, when she feels hopeless, we know that there's no reason for her to be hopeless. We know that there's no reason for her to despair. She hasn't been abandoned. I have to imagine it's very similar with God. He always has his eye on you. You're on his baby monitor. 
And you may feel abandoned, you may feel in despair, you may feel hopeless, but God knows that those feelings aren't the objective reality. Even when you despair, even when you feel hopeless, there is still hope. Even when you feel abandoned, he has not abandoned you. Hebrews 13.5 says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And do you know why God can make that promise? Because of Jesus. You know what Jesus cried out on the cross, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, Jesus actually experienced some sort of forsakenness on the cross, being left there, forsaken by his heavenly Father. That's a forsakenness that you will never know. And so whatever depths of pain and despair and abandonment you feel, Jesus has been there and deeper, which means he knows what it's like to be where you are. He is sympathetic to the harshest of prayers. He knows what kind of pain brings out prayers like Psalm 88. But he also knows that in your pain, you will cry out things that simply are not true. You will never be abandoned because Jesus was abandoned on the cross for your sake. Through your prayer, though your prayer may feel hopeless, there's always hope. In your despair, Christ is your hope. In your shame, Christ will be your faithfulness. In your oppression, Christ will be your advocate. In your suffering, Christ will be your comfort. In your persecution, Christ will be your vindicator. In your depression, Christ will be your joy. In your darkness, Christ will be your light. In your alienation, Christ will be with you. Even in your dying, Christ will be your life. Christ is your victory. He has overcome the greatest threat to us all, death. And if you're in Christ, you will overcome death too. And if you will overcome death, then there's nothing that can overcome you. Christ is your victory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you admitting that so many things in our life take us into the depth of pain, take us into the pit of despair, and it's so lonely there, and it's tempting to believe that there's no hope. It's tempting to believe that you've abandoned us, and Father, we thank you and praise you that even when we feel that way, even when we say those things to you, you don't turn away from us. You receive our prayers. You hear our prayers. You are merciful and gracious to us. And so, Father, we ask that by your Spirit going forward, we would always bring our pain to you. We wouldn't hide it, but we would trust you with it. We pray this all in your Son's name, Lord. Amen.